0: Uh, We are uh, finishing up a series I started a few weeks ago called Cosmic Collision. And if you're a guest with us for the first time, I want to welcome you. Glad that you're here. Uh, There's a bulletin you received when you came in. There's a connection card on the side if you'll take a moment and fill that out with as much information as you feel comfortable giving us. And at the exit, there is a basket. You can drop that off on your way out this morning and also a gift for you. There are also message notes uh, if you want to grab those and pull them out. Uh, so let me just kind of back up and kind of review a little bit to help us put context for what it is that we're going to be um, celebrating this morning as we celebrate. Uh, Advent as well as the Lord's Supper together. Uh, It's always a very, very special time for us. So in case I forget to say this, uh, I know that uh, we have you come forward to receive the the Lord's Supper. And I know that there are many of you who have difficulty walking. Please just stay seated. And we have someone who's going to bring it back to you so you won't have to make that walk to the front uh, during the time that we celebrate and we'll be singing and celebrating together. Uh, So Cosmic Collision. Uh, In the opening pages of the Bible, Uh, we note very quickly that there are two rival kingdoms, all right? There is the kingdom of God, and then there is the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. And these two rival kingdoms come into a collision course. Now, this collision course happened way before God created the heavens and the earth. We know through Jesus' statement in Revelation chapter 12 that at some point, God, wanting to express love outside of himself, created angelic beings. We don't know how many angels there are that just says mirads upon mirads. There could be millions and millions. do not sure. But we do know that Satan, who was a cherub angel who um, had access to the throne of God and really was there to to aid in worship and protect the glory of God, somehow um, pride rose up in his heart, and he desired the very throne of God. And he convinced one third of the angels to side with him and went to war with God, seeking to overtake God's throne. You can read about these in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And so, suddenly, uh, you know, all of a sudden now Satan is cast out of heaven, Uh, he's cast down to the earth. And so, this is like the earth, it was formless, it was void, uh, it was darkness. Uh, but he established his own little kingdom with his own little subjects, the, the fallen angels that the Bible refers to. Lucifer, who was the cherub angel, now becomes Satan, a name that kind of describes this new character and the demonic beings. And so they, they have access to this world, to the heavenlies, the invisible realm. And of course, Satan, we know, had limited access to the throne of God if God so allowed him to show up. And and so in Genesis, here is this visual expression that happens, that, it, that is going on in the invisible realm, comes to planet earth. And we see this collision all through the Bible where Satan's kingdom is warring against the kingdom of God. It's like a chess match. God makes a move, Satan makes a counter move. God makes a move, Satan makes a counter move. And we see this all the way to the birth of Jesus. For example, when Jesus is born, you know, within two years after that, Herod finds out about this rival king. And so it's like Satan's going to use Herod to countermove God's move of bringing Jesus into the world. And so he tries to stamp out this new uh, king by taking the lives of all male children two years and under in, in Bethlehem so that's that's kind of the rival kingdom so we know that Satan's been cast to the earth and then the Bible says that God spoke into existence uh, he created the heavens of the earth he took what was formless and void what was chaotic and and turned it into something that is beautiful and wonderful uh, the kingdom of God here on earth and he plants Adam and Eve the first two human beings in the Garden of Eden and the Bible says that God God walks with them and he has relationship with them and there is intimacy and there's, their lives are filled with hope and peace and joy and love that exchange between themselves and God. And so God has this original design. And the Bible says he created them in his image, which means he created them as triune beings, spirit, soul, and body. This is so important that you understand that the spirit, God, when he formed and fashioned Adam and Eve, he breathed into them the breath of life, the pneuma, the spirit of God. They were spiritual beings. Unlike the animal kingdom, they had this unique relationship with God. Your soul is your mind, will, and emotion. It's the psychological part of your life. Your body is what we look at, is how we interact with one another. And they were given an assignment, and the assignment was they were to be fruitful and to multiply, and watch this, and they, to, they were to rule over God's creation. They were to be the stewards of what God had created. Now, here's what we've noticed, is that, okay, here's Satan's kingdoms on earth. Now, all of a sudden, God plants his kingdom on earth and puts them right in Satan's domain. And he gives them the authority to rule and to reign over what he has created. It's like, uh, you countermoved, I'm countermoving back. And so here's Adam and Eve. And if they stewarded well what God had given to them, they would, they would continue to grow and multiply until they covered the entire world. And so Satan understood that if he could get them to act against God as he had acted, then all of a sudden there would be a transfer out of God's kingdom into his kingdom. And so God gave one rule in the garden. You can eat of all the trees with the exception of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because God did not want Adam and Eve to experience evil. He was guarding them. He was protecting them. But he also gave them the freedom of choice because that's what love does. Love allows you to freedom of will, the freedom of choice. Rather than making them like robots, incapable of expressing or experiencing love, God enabled them to experience and to express love between himself and they. And um, so God creates out of love. Now, Adam and Eve, of course, we know the story, right? Adam and Eve chose. Satan comes along and tempts them. Hey, God's holding out on you. If you want to be like God, then you need to partake in this tree and they did. And when that happened, everything in the world was broken. So we're going to put the three circles back up here because this is really the premise of this whole series is that God has an original design. His original design, he said, was good. It was perfect. And that's the way God wanted it to be. Had Adam and Eve just continued to walk with God and to listen to him and follow after him and allow him to be their provider and their protector, that's they could have lived eternally that way. And the animal kingdom got along and everything that God had created was, was perfect. But when they succumbed to the temptation, um, God said, on the day that you do that, you'll surely die. So the moment they partook of that forbidden tree, they immediately died in their spirit. And so the spirit of God moved out. They were now spiritually disconnected from God. They were spiritually dead. Their soul, their mind, will, and emotions began to suffer the effects of sin and there was there was fear and there was hiding and there was shame and there was guilt and there was uh, blaming and justifying their actions and ultimately they would die in their bodies. And so the Bible teaches us that God had this original design and anytime we choose to step outside of God's design, that's called sin and sin always leads to brokenness, right? Always, not just back in the garden, but even today. When you choose to live outside of God's design, it results in brokenness. And we are broken in so many different ways. It's easy to spot. We're broken in our relationships. Where brokenness comes out in addictions and depression and discouragement and guilt feelings and shame feelings and emptiness and people hurt people. In fact, most of the pain that you will experience during the course of your lifetime is going to happen at the hands of somebody else. Something they say, something they do. You have to admit that you have habits you can't break, thoughts that you do not want, emotions you don't like, insecurities and fears that you cannot hide, regrets and resentments that you cannot let go of, and you say, boy, I wish things were better. And so in our brokenness, we immediately try to fix it, right? I'm going to fix what's broken in me. But no matter how we hard we try to fix it, and we have entire industries built around helping people get fixed, but it just doesn't work that way. We, we try to medicate ourselves. We try to numb ourselves. We try to ramp up our personal discipline and, and um, dedication. We try church. We try religion. We strive to be better people that someday, somehow, or, you know, our good's going to outweigh our bad. And, and, and all of a sudden, you know, God's going to let me into heaven. And we look for ways to alleviate our pain that only leads to more brokenness. So the question is, what can, what can heal the brokenness of humanity? That's what Christmas is all about. The answer is the gospel. The answer is always the gospel. The answer is Jesus. Only Jesus can heal your brokenness because brokenness comes out of a broken heart and only God can change the heart. And so seeing our condition, God decided to wade in to the mess of humanity. And so he gave those prophetic promises that gave hope to Israel that one day a Messiah would come. And again, in Galatians four four, it says, When the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Jesus is the only one who ever chose to be born. And God came in the flesh. He chose to be born in order to heal the brokenness of humanity, to, bro- to heal the brokenness of our lives. And so we read in Luke chapter... Um, Two in verse 8. It says that there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch of their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ. He's the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in And cloths, and lying in a manger, suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angels praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened about which the Lord has told us about. And so they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying there. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Now at Christmas time, we love to sing Christmas songs, do we not? And uh, oftentimes Christmas songs um, build this uh, scene of, of this coming of Christ into the world. You know, Jesus is king. Remember, he, he is the king of the kingdom, right? The kingdom of God. And if Jesus is king, then we who are members of the kingdom, we are his subjects and he has kingdom rules. But when Jesus came as king, his birth was really anything but royal. If I were to put a word on the the original birth of Christ, the original coming of Jesus into the world, it would not be the word royal, it would be the word redneck. Now, if you are a redneck... You're not offended by that because rednecks don't get offended over things like that. I've watched enough redneck shows, like my redneck marriage and and all these kinds of... And the reason I say that, I mean, think about the entrance of Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords into the world. If you look at this objectively, Jesus is born in a barn. Uh, My mother, when I was growing up, used to say, when I left the door open, hey, were you born in a barn? Shut that door, right? So it really wasn't like a barn, barn. It was like where some of you have weddings, you know, hey, don't call me a redneck because I have my wedding in a barn. No, it's, it's more, it was more like a cave. Um, and so Jesus is born in this cave um, to an unwed teenage mother who, uh, <laughs> and there were animals in the delivery room. There's no doctor to deliver this baby, only the rough hands of a carpenter. And so think about just getting Mary from from um, Nazareth to Bethlehem was like a 70 to 80 mile trip. We know she's like about to deliver. And the Bible doesn't say that she rode a dog, donkey, but certainly we, we uh, anticipate that probably she did because of uh, where she, her condition was in the pregnancy. And so she's trying to get, you know, make this long trip to give birth to a son in a barn with animals in the delivery room and no doctor that is present. And I, I'm sure that Joseph, he's trying to get her ready for the trip. And it's like, okay, you know, uh, don't forget the dill pickles, the potato chips, and the mustard, whatever else she's craving. I don't know. Uh, like, my daughter's here this, this morning. They made a trip from Raleigh, North Carolina. She is pregnant with my second grandson due in doing May, right? So she made the trip, a long trip, but in a car. Think about walking, donkey, redneck. Uh, and she, she requested that we have Cheryl's cookies waiting for her when she, she arrived. So we bought 36, and she's eaten 26 of them already. But. And so they get there. There's, there's no room. There's no presidential suite um, waiting on them. They're ushered back to where the livestock are. And so here Jesus is born, and then if that weren't enough, he's... He's placed in a manger, which is a feeding trough for the animals. He's wrapped in swaddling clothes, which simply means they were linen strips that were used as burial cloths, which was quite, quite prophetic about what he had come to do. You see, it was anything but royal. I think that the first, I think the first entrance of Jesus into the world was quite redneck, and there was no one more redneck Than the shepherds. You see, the shepherds weren't looked upon very fondly by the religious leaders. The shepherds, uh, like, they were on a constant camp out, okay? And uh, they were smelly, they were dirty, their clothes were tattered and torn a lot of times. And they would spend months out with sheep and holding them and carrying them. And so you you can imagine the stench and the odor that was upon them. And yet, it's the angels who come to the shepherds and say to them, Come and see this thing which God has done. There is good news of great joy. And so the shepherds, who, by the way, would not be allowed to be in temple uh, because of their Their condition uh, and their their, so, but they come to the arrival of the King of Kings into the world. God invites them. And my question is, why? Why did not God go to the religious leaders who had very carefully studied over 300 prophecies that that dealt with every aspect of the coming of their Messiah from the place that he was going to be born and and all the the nuances of his life? Why the shepherds? I think you find the answer. we discover a little bit about why that is, because here's what he says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for what? For all the people. All the people. Not just for the well-educated and the well-behaved, not just for the well-mannered and the well-dressed, not just for those who have healthy families and strong marriages and who are gainfully employed. He says, I'm coming for all the people, the the poor, the brokenhearted, the imprisoned, the the blind, the oppressed. Uh, So in choosing the shepherds, and God, I think, is making a statement that he wants all the world to know that Jesus, when he came as Messiah, when he came as the Savior of the world, he came for all people, not just for some. Jesus' message, no matter who you are, what you've done, or how you look, Christmas is for you. Because I've come to offer you something. And there are three things he's come to offer you. Number one, he has come to offer you a pardon from your past. A pardon from your past. So at this time, you'll just turn over to Colossians chapter 1. Because really, uh, this is what Paul talks about in the book of Colossians He says that Jesus is the the firstborn of all creation, that Jesus is God in the flesh. And so Paul really gives us some incredible insight into Jesus and what he has come to offer us. Notice what it says in verse uh, 21. He says, once you were alienated from God. Why was I alienated from God? Because I was spiritually dead. And so I really had no desire for God I really had no um, uh, desire of the things of God. Uh, when I came up, you know, growing up in a family, uh, because Jesus just wasn't a part of our family. It just wasn't a part of our household. I, I never heard his name unless it was in a curse word. Uh, and, and so I, I had no desire for God. I, I was alien. I didn't realize I was alienated. I didn't know that there was a problem between me and God. I just never even thought about God. He just really didn't come on my radar. And he says we're alienated from God. And we were what? Enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. Oh, but now, but now, and we always like the but nows, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. How can God do that? And that was God's dilemma. How can I take evil, sinful humanity in light of my holiness and my righteousness, my justice, how can I maintain that and yet forgive and pardon what humanity has done? And God decided that he himself would absorb the cost of man's sin. And he himself would come into the world and make payment for humanity's sin so that God could extend his grace to us, that he could extend his forgiveness, his pardon. He could wipe the past as though it never happened. But notice he says that our, 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 our behavior... You see, one of the things we learn at the Christmas story is that after the shepherds go away and uh, Jesus is probably around one and a half, two years of age, all of a sudden there are magi from the east who come and they're following a star. It's kind of like God's guiding star and he's leading them to the Christ child and they have specific gifts to, to bring to him. But before they can find him, they come to King Herod, and King Herod finds out, oh, there's this rival king. I'm king over this territory. I will allow no rival kings in his mind. And so he, at Jesus, shortly after Jesus, he misused the religious leaders to find out where this king would be born. And then he misled the Magi and he said, listen, I too would love to go and worship this Christ child. So let me know where he's at. I want to come. And he mistreated the people of Bethlehem because he unfolded his really his evil intent was to wipe out this rival king. And so he takes the lives of all the male children two years and and under you see, I believe there's a little bit of Herod in all of us, right? There's a little bit of hair. We tend to misuse people at times for our own benefits. Sometimes we mislead people by lying, okay, or or by slandering. We, we mistreat those around us from time to time. We may not physically take their lives, but the Bible reminds us we have the power of life and death in our tongue and in our texts. You see, when Jesus came to offer us pardon from our past, it wasn't just like a little makeover. I was like, oh, Greg, you know, you're so wonderful. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just thrilled that you're wanting to come into my kingdom. I, I, I'll just sprinkle a little bit of grace on you because you really weren't that bad of a person. See, so I don't think we can be, even begin to understand the evilness of our hearts. Our inclination is to go our way, not God's way, The Bible says that we are naturally self-centered, that we have hearts that are filled with rebellion. And so when we say, I I don't need God, I'll run my own life, I'll follow my own heart, I'll do my own thing, it creates tremendous conflict and stress within us because God did not create us as independent beings. He created us as dependent people. Even Adam and Eve in the perfected garden were dependent upon God. That's the way God created us. And so when we step out in our rebellion and we choose to live life apart from God, it creates distance, it creates a disconnectedness. And so we are searching for something within us that's going to fill this inner longing that we have in our hearts because the Bible reminds us that God has set eternity in our hearts. And so what we do in our disconnectedness from God is we try to fill that void that emptiness with something or someone else. And so we run from relationship to relationship. We run from thing to thing, from toys and cars and computers and whatever else we're trying to fill our lives with only to come up even more empty. It's like drinking from a broken well and they just cannot satisfy because God has not created them to do that. And so we get caught in this vicious cycle. But Jesus would come and say, And the message of Christmas is that no matter how far you have run, no matter what you have done, I have come to offer you a pardon from your past. I've come to offer you something you cannot acquire on your own. No one can go to Walmart. No one can go to the Apple store. No one can purchase anything and offer you what Jesus is offering you. And so Jesus says, I wanted you to know the depth of my love for you. And so I'm going to offer myself up as the ultimate sacrifice for your sins. And sacrifice himself he did. You only know the depth of somebody's love by the depth of their sacrifice, what they're willing to give up for you. And so Jesus gave up his life that we might be pardoned. Jesus made it clear about how deeply he loves us as he left his throne in heaven and went to this lowly stable in Bethlehem and went as low as he could go, which really kind of replicated the the serpent in the garden, how low he was, and so Jesus says, I'll come lower and I will offer myself up as a substitute, that's the key word we learned last week, substitute For your sins. So, what Jesus did was he died on a cross to substitute your sin debt for his righteousness, right? So when God looks at you, it's an accounting term, is that when you receive Christ, when you rest in the finished work of Jesus on the cross at Calvary, the Bible says God takes all of your sin debt, all of your past and all the present and all the future and he credits it to Christ's account and then he takes all the righteousness of Christ, all that is right so that we can have right living and right lives so we can have lives filled with hope, peace and love and joy and he credits it to our account. Out, not because of what I do but because of what he does and has done grace Americans are taught that there is no such thing as a free lunch you get what you pay for and God helps those who helps themselves but that's not what God offers us you know as I was a kid one of the things I wanted um, uh, for Christmas one year was an Etch-a-Sketch how many of you remember etch a sketches? They even still make those. I don't know if they still make them. So you'd have the two little knobs, you make little pictures, and, and then when you wanted to erase it, you turned it upside down and shook it and it wiped the slate clean. That is exactly what Jesus is offering to humanity. That's why he came into the world. That's why we celebrate his birth. That's the message of Christmas. That's what he offers you is to wipe your slate clean, to erase the data. And the evidence of your sins. And they're wiped out. And God gives us a choice as to whether or not we want to receive that offer. Here's the second thing he offers us. Jesus offers us purpose for life. Purpose for life. It says in verse 27 of Colossians 1, it says to them, God has chosen to make us known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery which is in Christ, which is Christ is in you, the hope of glory. I love that. Christ is in you, the hope of glory. So Jesus not only came as our Savior to pardon our past, but he also came to reset the direction of our lives in the present. And In resetting the direction of our lives, look, he says, you can't do this on your own. What I'm going to do is I'm going to breathe back into you. Remember what happened to Adam and Eve? They immediately died where? In their spirit. How are you and I born in the world? Dead in our spirits. We are spiritually dead. We are disconnected from God. So when I step into and rest in the finished work of Christ on Calvary, he breathes into us the breath of life, the spirit of God that enables us to reset the direction of our lives so that it is Christ in us. It is Christ, the hope of glory. So you're going to live your life on one of three levels. You're either going to live your life on the level of survival, survival, right? Half of the world's population, half of the world's population, seven billion people, half of that population lives on less than $2 a day. That's survival. Survival. Over $1 live less on less than $1 a day. But there's more than just material survival. There's emotional survival. You see, some of you are so locked up and imprisoned by your emotions that you're just surviving life. It's like, oh, I, and, and the reason is because you are basing your life on lie-based thinking that is rooted in deep woundedness within you. And that woundedness is driving your life and you feel like a prisoner. And some of you, even though you've giving your life to Christ, you still have not experienced that, wo- that healing in the wounded areas of your life, and you're still locked up, and you're just surviving. And, and over time, we just like, you know what, Lord? Just please take me home. Just take me on to heaven. And help me escape all this. Just give me the relief uh, when I enter into heaven. That, that's not what Jesus came to do. He did not come to give you a survival kind of life. He came to give you freedom not just survival. The second way is you can try to live a life of success. We tend to equate success with obtaining certain income or a job title or a status, or, or, or we define ourselves by what we do. You know, you can, you can have a lot to live on and still not be living. You can be busy making a living, but you fail to make a life. You have an enemy who is always attempting to get you to fill your life with something else, right? So my mother-in-law died this year, um, but she, in her heyday, uh, she loved QVC. I mean, loved QVC. They knew her by first name. That's how much stuff she ordered, right? So when she called up, hey, Carol, how you doing? Haven't heard from you for like, you know, an hour. Uh, what's going on? So like most stuff that we receive for Christmas came from QVC, right? So the thing about QVC, QVC is always trying to sell you something, right? So they run the TV, you know, program and they're selling you this, that, and other. And, you you know, if you call up and, uh, wow, we've we've got this watch and it also acts as a toaster. And if you buy it, uh, you know, if you buy it within 10 minutes, uh, we'll give you a bonus. uh, We'll give you bonus wind chimes or something. You know, they're gonna throw something in there because they're constantly selling you something, constantly trying to get you to buy something. Similarly, you have, listen, you have an enemy, a rival kingdom to God's, Satan's kingdom who is constantly trying to sell us on the reality that there is more that there is more out there than just plain old boring God. You, you've you got to have God in this and you've got to have God in that and you've got to add things to it and man, I, I mean, so, you know, I bought a shop vac. And you want to know why I bought a shop vac? Because it had all kinds of cool attachments. I've barely ever used that shop vac. It sits in my crawl space. I don't know when the last time it was, but it had all kinds of cool attachments. And so that's what Satan tempts us with. He says, listen, 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 listen. Let's just, God's just an attachment to your life. Here's what you really want. And so that's the way we treat God, right? We come on Sundays and we're like, all oh, about God, and all about singing, and all about worship. And, you know, it's a great thing. Then we hit Monday and it's like, okay, God, you're over here. And now I'm going to live my life this week. When, when Sunday comes back around, I'll come back and reattach you. You see that that's not success. What God wants us to live is a life of significance. Significance. You know, people say, well, those who die with the most toys win. That's not success. You are created for significance and you never find it from possessions or pleasures or positions. Significance comes from service. That's why Jesus said, if you want to be the greatest in my kingdom, be a servant. And then he demonstrated it. He lived it out. He put a towel around his waist and knelt down and washed his disciples' feet, knowing that just in a few hours he's about to be arrested and crucified and and to experience a horrible death for the sake of humanity. What keeps us from living a life of significance? Fear. Fear fear. I mean, think about the first Christmas. What could have kept Joseph, Mary, the shepherd, and the wise men from experiencing this significant event? Fear. Joseph, out of fear, could have said, listen, Lord, I don't care if you tell me she's been impregnated by the Holy Spirit or not. She's out. Or what if when God, through an angel, came to Mary and says, you're about to give birth to the Messiah, and it's like, "Oh, no, no. Because in Mary's mind, it's like, uh, I'm afraid. I mean, what are people going to say? What do people want to think? How are they going to treat me? How am I going to explain this to my parents and to to Joseph and to my neighbors? I mean, they came from Nazareth. Nazareth wasn't some, some big metropolis city, okay? It was a city of about 300 people. Everybody knew everybody's business. And so the greatest weapons, as we said before, that Satan uses against us is lie and deception and fear. Why does he use fear? Because he knows that we will not take authority over something that we are afraid of. And so fear stops us dead in our tracks. But God wants us to experience Christ in a real and a very powerful way as our faith flows out through this relationship. Remember, fear helped drive the decision of Adam and Eve. They just couldn't trust God's character. And so they chose to rebel. Fear is in the realm of Satan's kingdom, not God's kingdom. God said, I did not give you a spirit of fear. I did not give you a spirit of fear or timidity, but of a sound mind. Fear therefore grabs hold of the reality of God's kingdom and brings it from heaven to earth right? And so we've we've talked about this in this whole series is that God has given us the ability through the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and we have become the, the source by which God brings the things of heaven down to bear on earth called the church of Jesus Christ. He's given us the keys to the kingdom so that we would not live our lives in fear but we would live our lives in faith, in trusting in the very character of God that Adam and Eve failed to trust in so that we can experience God a little bit of heaven down here on earth. Now this, this earth is never going to be heaven, but we can experience a little bit of heaven on earth and we can certainly ex- help others experience a little bit of heaven on earth by experiencing and tasting of and knowing that God is good and that his kingdom has come and his will does want to, wants to be done. And so our faith is rooted in what? Our faith is rooted in God's word and his promises. And so when the angel spoke to Mary, her response to God is what our response ought to be. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. And so when you root your faith in God's word and God speaks to you through his word, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the the word of God. We receive these heavenly downloads of the Holy Spirit like downloading software on your phone. And so the Holy Spirit wants to meet with us and speak with us and help direct our lives so that we receive solutions and strategies and divine wisdom for the challenges that we face in life and we live out our our kingdom lives here on earth. And that's some powerful stuff. And the result of that faith is that God unleashes his power. He opens up his hand of grace and we rest. My wife's been trying to get me to rest. She said, Greg, you need to rest. She bought me a book called The Rhythms of Rest. I haven't read it yet. Uh, (laughs) But every time I listen to a podcast, I hear somebody talking about rest. What God wants us to do is to rest. And the rhythms of God's grace. So, whatever you need, whatever heavenly download that you need for that moment in your life, that you can listen to the Father and you can curl up in His lap. Nothing brings greater joy in my life than when a grandchild curls up in my lap and lays their head on my chest. And so God invites us to do that through his son, Jesus. God invites us to rest in him and to rest in the finished work of Christ. He has pardoned you from your past, and now he wants to empower you for your present. And here's the third thing that he offers, and it's going to lead us into the Lord's Supper, is that he offers you a place at his table. You know, one of the things I love about holidays is to have family over, and so do you, right? And so people come over, and we gather for a meal. There's nothing. There's something special, something very unique. There, there's intimacy around the table, right? So if you invite people over to your house and you invite them to a meal, um, you are extending an invitation and people just sit down. We start, we start eating. We just start talking. People just start opening up more about their lives. And so when Jesus invites us to the table, he says, I want to offer to you, I want to offer you the." The gift of grace. You see, grace, grace is a person. Grace is a person. It's Jesus Christ. And grace is appropriated by resting in the finished work of Christ. And when you rest in that finished work, God opens up his hands of grace. But when you try to work it yourself, and you try to do it yourself, and and that's what religion is is about, is I try to work and do, 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 and God just closes his hands of grace. He says, no, no, it's not about you doing. It's all about what has been done. And so as we celebrate the Lord's table together, it reminds us of what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ, and why Jesus came into the world. You see, Jesus came, and we celebrate. We'll pick up a cup, and that cup has the fruit of the vine in it that represents the blood of Jesus. Why is that so important? Because the answer to your brokenness is always the same. It is the gospel. It is the the finished work of Christ. And so that cup is symbolic of blood. It is earth's substance that illustrates the reality of spiritual life. The Bible teaches us that life is in the blood, right? We know that. Life is found in the blood. Everything your cells need to thrive on, minerals and vitamins and nutrients and oxygen, is found in the blood. It's delivered through the bloodstream. And it washes away the toxins. And once the the blood cells are used up, then they are removed from the body. What is it that... What is it that produces your blood cells? It is the bone marrow, that soft, spongy marrow inside of your bones that produces blood. And so the the blood cells bring everything that is essential to your living, to your life. And every blood cell that is established from your bone marrow has your DNA stamped on it. So Greg's blood cells, every three months, your your body replaces the every blood cell in your body is replaced every three months. And so out of the bone marrow, it produces new blood cells with your DNA stamped on it. Now, here's what the Bible teaches that when we came into the world, that our DNA was stamped with Adam. That's all that came from us was Adam and Adam led to death. But God promised that there would be one who would come, Jesus, the Messiah, who would bring not death, but life. And so when you rest into the finished work of Christ, now all of a sudden, God gives you a blood transfusion, so to speak. He gives you new bone marrow so that your blood cells, spiritually speaking, Are now pumping out the blood, the DNA of Jesus, which is life. Not life because you. Behave the right way, not life because you've done the right thing, not life because you promised God this, that, or the other if he would just forgive you. No, it is Jesus' life, period. You rest in the finished work of Christ. So when you pick up that cup, you remember this, the reason why God could pardon your past and the reason why he can empower your future and you can experience a little bit of heaven on earth is because Jesus gave his life for you. And we take the bread. And the bread is the body of Christ that was broken for us. And as the Apostle Paul reminds us, we are crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so now, you, through Christ, are able to live a life of significance. And so what Jesus does, and what we celebrate is that when Christ brought you into his kingdom, he reestablished your hope and your peace and your joy and your love. Everything you're looking for in life flows out of this relationship. And Jesus so loved you that he was willing to sacrifice himself on behalf of you so that you could enter into his kingdom to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, so that you, one day, yes, you're going to experience full healing, spirit, soul, and body in heaven. But in the meantime, listen, it's not a, oh, just let's get through life until I get there. Oh, no, no, no. No, Jesus has empowered you with the gospel, the good news of Christ. And that gospel has attached to it signs and wonders and miracles. Let's bow our heads together. Father, as we come to...